taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we step into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. I'm yours truly, Brian Chilton. We're going to bring Curtis Evelo on here in just a few moments. Uh, we have a special guest with us tonight as we continue our last two episodes of our summer interview series. And of course, uh, this season, season two, uh, an abbreviated season at that, has been on the issue of creationism and we have a wonderful wonderful guest uh with us coming up both tonight and next week uh before we bring on curtis uh we do want to let you know that season six of the bellator christie podcast is coming your way september 22nd and starting then we're going to try Try is the operative word uh, to uh, possibly have this available to you on YouTube and social media as we record the podcast, uh, getting it ready to go out on the different apps or wherever you're listening to this podcast now. It'll still be available there, but this gives you another means uh, to uh, listen to the podcast as well. And of course, this one in this format, this is going to be live. So this should be a very interesting situation. Uh, Trial by fire. We'll just say that. So that's coming up September 22nd. We've got three theology series we're going to cover this season, starting off with pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Then we're going to take a look at soteriology, the study of salvation, before concluding this uh, season six with a look at uh, theology proper, where we talk about uh, the revelation of God and the knowledge of God. How do we know God exists? And how do we know certain truths about God? Uh, how does God communicate with with us. We're going to cover that and a whole lot more coming up on Season 6 of the Bellator Christie Podcast. Well, without further ado, let us welcome the one, the only, the legend, the man, or the man, the myth, and the legend uh, that is Curtis Evelo. Curtis, welcome back, my friend. Oop. Hold on just a second. Let me... Ah. May have to get... There we go. There. How's that? <laughs> we're monkeying around with some new features and we'll, uh, we'll just we'll leave it at that <laughs> there's that yeah well folks man we've been uh we've been awful busy um putting some stuff together and um want everybody to kind of be aware uh we have a uh a newsletter um that that just came out it's a sword and shield it's a it's a newsletter that um uh, supporters of the podcast and, and Bellator Christie and contributors to Bellator Christie actually get to take part in, and it's it's actually part of that um, uh, part of that end of the ministry where where we can do that. If you want to enroll in on getting that newsletter, um, shoot us an email um, with your email address stating what you want us to do with that, and we'll surely get that out to you. And, uh, we want to get that out and share as much information as possible. Um, on that uh, newsletter, it kind of gives updates of what the ministry's up to, um, what the podcast has been up to, um, just what in the future is going to be happening, um, maybe changes, events, any of those kind of things, um, in the future, 
when we have speaking events and those kind of things, those types of things will be in that newsletter. And so you don't want to miss out on that. Please, uh, you know, if you feel like you want to sign up for it, sign up for it. We want to get as much information out there. And Curtis, you know the best thing that. about it? It's absolutely free. <laughs> absolutely free. Yeah. That's a good four-letter word, I suppose, huh? Outside of salvation, what? how many things in life are free? I mean, this is absolutely free to people yeah. who want to subscribe. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, yep. Well, and you know, Brian, I just want to take a second here. Um, I had a chance um, to be on another podcast yesterday uh, with with a guy uh, named Cody Jansen. He runs a podcast called Digging Deep ATV Motocross Podcast. So it, it's, um, it's something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I used to race uh, motocross back when I was younger. Uh, now, um, now, hold, hold, hold on, hold on, just a second. You didn't just race, didn't you? Say you're the champion. I mean, we should have Queen no, playing. No, no, we are the champion I, right now. No, I'm I'm the champion of the of the uh, of the of the uh, uh, fantasy league um, ATV motocross uh, oh, okay. of the year. So this year, this year I, I won the championship of of that uh, of that. So yeah, but what a fun time that was, and got a chance to kind of talk and live and and walk walk back into some memories and uh got to really enjoy that time so um and bellator christie had a chance to be mentioned on there and uh so it was good so if anybody wants to go check that out it's a digging deep atv podcast so you can get that i'm sure on any of the on any of the channels you know uh, itunes stitcher any of that so anyway that was a that was really fun for me and uh you know i got a chance to kind of visit and talk and and be able to uh just describe how um that type of thing actually created such a family um closeness with my son and with my family and we were able to harass and harangue each other and all the way through the year um with the fantasy league you got to pick your teams and and go from there so it was it was a great time good time talking with cody and Man, he is a he is a sharp, sharp uh, uh, broadcaster, and what an amazing host! So, if we ever get a chance to visit with him face to face, man, it's going to be a riot. So, awesome. anyway, I suppose we better get on to our uh, on to our guest. Absolutely, we have the distinguished honor and privilege of as we're talking about uh, as we're talking about uh, creationism. Uh, we have the distinct honor and privilege to welcome on a guy who is a scientist. Uh, he is a philosopher, and he's a theologian. I mean, it's very rare you have that combination. <laughs> and I want to welcome on a good friend of mine. We took classes up at Litchburg, Virginia at Liberty University. Uh, I'm talking about Jerry Bogatz. He was born and raised in the Chicago area. Uh, Jerry and his wife, Kathy, relocated to Lexington, Virginia in 2015, where they reside to this day. As a scientist, Jerry worked as a research scientist and project manager in immunodiagnostic and DNA diagnostic product development. Boy, that is a mouthful. For Abbott Laboratories. <laughs> <laughs> I did some praying, Jerry, while I was reading that. Especially, especially with your old southern accent with the cotton balls in your mouth. <laughs> As uh, you are talking to a guy who got a letter from Liberty saying that I was going to be deported, and uh, it must have been my southern dialect, is all I can say. <laughs> Anyhow, oh, that's great. Jerry is a PhD candidate in the PhD in Theology and Apologetics program at Liberty University. He graduated from Biola University with two degrees an MA in Apologetics and an MA in Science and Religion. 
He was a resident in the 2013 in 2013 at the C.S. Lewis Fellowship at the Discovery Institute. Also, Jerry received training at Cross-Examined Apologetics Training in 2014. Uh, ministerially, he served as a pastoral and teaching elder at Evanston Bible Fellowship in Evanston, Illinois. And Jerry's primary areas of research are focused around the integration of science and theology. That is just right up what we're talking about uh, in this series. Biblical anthropology, we're going to hit into that some on this uh, series. Bioethics and worldview studies. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jerry Bogatz. Jerry, welcome to Bellator Christie Podcast. Well, hello all, and uh, this is uh, one of my first experiences in doing this. So hopefully, I uh, I survive and don't stumble all over myself. Uh, <laughs> so uh, looking forward to some of these issues, which are deep, complex, and uh, multifaceted. So. Um, and I'll try to, you know, add to some of the things I'll be talking about with resources that you can do further, further work on and uh, read about. I mean, this, this stuff is is massive literature on just about everything I'm going to cover tonight. We've got about four questions we're going to cover because we're covering such a, a massive area of research. We're going to cover the first four questions tonight on this episode. Episode. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, biology, the existence of God, uh, creation, how it shows evidence divine, but uh, of the divine, but or of design, excuse me, uh, leading to the divine. But in, in next week's episode, uh, we're going to look at uh, about uh, a few more questions as we talk about issues that are really important about uh, the image of God in humanity. What does that mean? We're going to talk about substance dualism. Uh, the uh, bifurcation of or an integration of uh, the soul and uh, the body. We'll talk about that coming up on next on the next edition, uh, our final episode, in fact, of uh, the summer interview series. Uh, one, one last one last thing I've got to say here, uh, Jerry, uh, you and I show that it is possible for a Bears fan and a Packers fan to be good friends. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and especially someone who likes Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I could handle the Packers, but Aaron Rodgers, not, not so much. We have some good repartee on that. Well, Jerry, let's jump right on into this. Where's the cheesehead, man? You had yeah. him up there. I tell you what, at, at break, as we take a break, I'll, I'll flip the camera over to show you my cheesehead. It's actually over here on the bookshelf, but I've got the camera angled differently than where the where the cheesehead is. I, I'll show my cheesehead. In fact, I may oh, go. I may go wear it. I don't know. <laughs> That's hilarious. But let's jump into this. Uh, Jerry, you're a biologist, you're a scientist, you're, you're a philosopher, and a theologian. How can biology be used to argue for the existence of God? Heavy topic. All right, I want to start, I want to answer this question to begin with the idea of general revelation. So general revelation is about the creation and uh, about all those biological things out there, including us. So I want to, you know, God's universal disclosure to all humanity is mediated through nature, mediated through nature, providential history, and moral law within the and the moral laws within the heart or consciousness of man rooted in the Imago Day. And so whereby all persons are informed, all of humanity, all individuals are informed of or have the capacity to know of God's existence 
with a root, even, even though it's rudimentary, an understanding of him as creator and his moral demands. And it's it's this body of divine truth, though limited, it's not exhaustive, but observable in a physical creation, including man. And the key picture that talks about this are, is um, beginning in Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? Well, verse 19 says, for God can be unknown, for God can be, for God can be unknown about, what can be unknown about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, how has he shown it to us? Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely, his internal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. No equivocation there, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So, you know, Paul is pretty, be, is pretty being pretty explicit here with what is the substance of the truth being suppressed. And he's emphatic that the invisible attributes of God's power and divine character are evidence and mediated through creation, all of it, through the, through the beauty of creation, through the trees, through the, through the insects, through the plants, through the animals, all of the unity, through uh, the atmosphere, anything, the entire creation and, and its unity. And we're talking about attributes of greatness, majesty, power, wisdom, goodness, and righteousness. So, he, God has placed it there in his creation already, evidencing who he is. Um, so if God's divinity is shown in creation, his full deity or essence is shown is embodied in Christ. And so Calvin would say, God revealed himself and daily discloses himself in the whole workmanship of the universe. And this wide variety of testimonies of God's existence from various parts of the creative world suggests to us that in one sense, everything that exists gives evidence of God's existence. Mm -hmm. uh, in, generation, in Genesis 1.26, we're going to talk about that later. Uh, mankind itself may be the greatest evidence of God being created in his image. Psalm, Psalm 8 says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly things and crowned him with glory and honor. So man not only has a knowledge of God's existence, but specific knowledge of his character. Hence, they are self-evident. And God holds man account morally without excuse for his tenacious lack of apprehension, suppressing that truth and holding back that truth in, in, in righteousness. Uh, one writer said, Alistair McGrath, another scientist theologian, there is an intrinsic capacity within the created order to disclose God. Here, nature as creation is understood to have an ontologically grounded capacity to reflect God as its maker and originator. And going back to Calvin, you know, he says it's, it's it, it, in character is so clear, unequivocal, and striking that the most illiterate, and then he used somewhat of a pejorative term maybe, and stupid cannot exculpate themselves from the plea of ignorance. So just right there is a kind of a testimony to Scripture itself attests to 
the evidence in creation already. And if the evidence is there, we should be able to see it and identify it. Uh, Bertrand Russell famously said, uh, the British atheist um, talked about the classical arguments for God's existence, which he didn't really have much time for. But he did kind of grant a fascinating exception to the argument from intelligent design, which we'll be talking about. And he says the slot the argument has no formal logical defects, its premises are empirical, and its conclusion professed to be reached in accordance with the uniform canons of empirical inference. This is coming from a British atheist. Um, and therefore, the, the question whether it's, not, whether it's to be accepted or not turns, therefore, not on general metaphysical questions, but on comparatively other detailed considerations. Um, so that's kind of my just introductory thing. I, just that it's there. Scripture attests to it. Um, and we can think of it in terms of biology, but we can think also cosmology. And uh, we'll talk about those particular arguments uh, maybe a bit later. So I just wanted to give that as an introduction to the idea of biology and creation. Christopher attests to quick, it. Quick question. Quick question for you. Did, did Bertram Russell have, is there anything particular as far as the design argument that you came across that he found compelling? Um, or was, there, was there anything in particular, did he say, or did he just kind of give a nod to uh, the argument from design? You know, a lot of the, um, a lot of the scientific data uh, during the time of Bertram Russell, Bertram Russell was just was kind of in its infancy about um, cosmology and uh, beginning of the universe. And he was a respecter of science and he saw the scientific data, but it's very similar to, to uh, Anthony Flew. Uh, Anthony Flew, a good friend of Gary Habermas, eventually gave up his atheism for theism. He never came to full-fledged Christianity or special revelation based on the argument of the fine-tuning argument, uh, the idea of design in the universe. And he thought there was intelligence behind that. Uh, so both of these gentlemen, you know, had, had a respect for, for the scientific data that seemed to indicate a design, something behind what we see. And as further, further uh, as we've gone to know more about the cell, more about cosmology, more about the universe, that data has gotten more detailed and extremely and more complex and continues to be debated today. Wow. Curtis, any follow-up questions? Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's a pretty uh, um, precise, uh, exacting um, description there. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, you know, Jerry, one thing that, one thing that it's hard um, to to explain to people that are that are in the secular world that may not believe in God, even though they are held to that same standard that, that God holds them to know Him through right. creation, through His evidence. Yeah. How can we explain that to them? without causing an offense nowadays because it sure seems like it's it's just you're like throwing gas on a fire yeah and you know it seems it's kind of uh maybe a little unsure whether to open up with that concept of general revelation 
because uh, we need to kind of get into circular arguments here. Because uh, typically, mm-hmm. typically the arguments uh, of intelligent design and are looking from the bottom up. You know, you're building a yeah. case uh, from the evidential case up. But I thought it was important to start there because it's the scripture claims it. Yeah. Uh, and you're right. We can't necessarily start there with a with a uh, unbeliever, and uh, most most scientific skeptics are just going to reject that. You know, mm-hmm. um, as you say, you're you know you're being circular. So you know we do start with the with the bottom up and try to look at. And this is based. This is the essence of what is the contemporary modern um, intelligent design movement. Mm-hmm. Um, they have traditionally made no claims about um, who the designer is. It's a group of scientists, philosophers, and theologians of various worldviews, and they are just advocating that some type of intelligence is out there. Right. Now, right. one caveat to that, Stephen Meyer, who is, uh, I believe now, he, he, he is the face of the intelligent design movement. Yes, I think now. you're right. And he wrote a book recently about uh, the God hypothesis being back on the table. Right. He is now coming back directly and saying, we're talking about yep. theology. You know, we're talking about God. Yep. So yep. he's one that's saying, okay, I th- I'm going to be out there. I'm going to say what I'm going <laughs> to say. And the God <laughs> hypothesis, through the work of the intelligence design and the science and information and all that, right. so, you know, infor- the issues of information and the biological complexity is all out there now. The God hypothesis is back. Right. And one of the you things that's funny, took, Jerry. One of the, uh, oh, just ahead, one, Brian. Yeah, sorry, Chris. One of the things I one of the things I took from that too is that um, as believers, we don't have to be afraid of science because the Scripture, as you mentioned, is right. open to the that's possibility right. that creation does show signs of of design. Uh, and so I found that compelling. Didn't mean to interrupt you there, Curtis. Hand it back to you. No, no, it, I, I was going to essentially say the same thing. I found that when it comes down to um, actually opening up, if you if you open up with a conversation like that, um, sometimes what I've found personally is being able to reach them with just the simple pointing out of, well, you see this computer or you see this building and you know it had a had a builder. You know, wow. we see creation we know it has, you know, and you see a computer, it's got all these functions and intelligence and, and these things that happen. Somebody had to program that computer. What makes us think that we're, you know, any different? Right. What you're doing there is the analogy. Right. You know, what is kind of commonsensical to us is that I'll give you. I'll give you an example similar to the famous uh, watchmaker thesis by Paley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's say, uh, consider yourself, you're new to America. You don't know anything about American history. Uh, you are doing a walk in the uh, Black Hills of North Dakota. Is it South Dakota or North South Dakota? Dakota. South yep. Dakota. And you look up and you see these four faces, <laughs> which you identify as four faces. And you don't know who those individuals are, but something tells you because of your common experience of pattern recognition, those are faces. And, well, 
Another possibility is you just say, well, isn't that amazing what the powers of water, wind, and erosion will do? Uh, <laughs> you know, the point is, you know, which way do you, do you see, say, okay, who did that? Or mm -hmm. where did that come from? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, who, who put that in the rack? Did it just happen that way? Like I said, or was it the forces of nature that just nicely? So this is the idea of identifying what the intelligent design folks will say, specified, complex, specified, complex specificity. Sorry, I got it backwards. Complex specificity. It's specific until you, as you see the pattern, and it's specified. It's highly specific. Mm -hmm. So our, our, just our, our, intuitive nature of our experience with um, we read a book well did those there was an author behind that book uh, we see an engineer you know, see a bridge built well somebody there's engineering and design that went that engineer. that's just our natural understanding and inference of things so why not are we able to make that same inference to biology aha but when we do that there's there is a massive pushback. Um, we can't, we're not allowed to do that. Um, so, uh, and then all kinds of other things go on in this debate that uh, aren't too pleasant, but uh, that's, that's the understanding is there's nothing, you know, forensics is another, is another example of idea and action. You piece yep. together the data and you make a distinction between was this murder, was this dead corpse we found an accident or did somebody do this? Um, and uh, you, there's nothing unusual about it. Richard Swan, Richard Swanburn in his book, uh, The Existence of God, he mentioned that very thing that you're talking about. He mentioned scientific evidence and personal evidence, and that the scientific evidence can, it reaches a point that it must go over into the personal evidence if a person will allow that. And so I think that's a good analogy there to a crime scene investigation. You're using the data to see basically who done it. And then you, you, you can build a compelling case over into that personal side, the personal causality uh, of the event that you're, that you're researching. And if, if you're looking for a, a good source that deals with this, these ideas and data, Jay Warner Wallace uh, was, a, was a Los Angeles detective most of his career. Uh, he has now gone into uh, apologetics work, and he's done... He's written extensively on this idea of applying his detective skills and um, to uh, to the creation, in a sense, and for to, to design and asking those questions. You know, can I can I investigate and do, you know do ask my questions and what do I come up with? Um, he's done some really he's published some really nice stuff on that. I would recommend folks look him up. Absolutely, I agree. Let, let's jump to our second question here, and we're getting more into the scientific realm on this question. On a cellular level, do we have reasons to believe that life was designed? And if so, uh, which being a show on creationism, we, we would imagine you'd say yes. Uh, but And so that being the case, what are some of those reasons? Right. Well, um, prior to... Darwin, that was the accepted notion that God was creator. Genesis was generally accepted. Uh, Post-Darwin, 
Well, Darwin kind of made it a jettisoned God out of his creation in some sense. We don't need we don't need that hypothesis anymore. Uh, we uh, nature can do it all by itself. And then preceding Darwin, and even during his time, the cell was basically uncharacterized. I mean, it was just considered a very simple biological structure. Didn't have microscopes, or they were just coming into use. Certainly didn't have electron microscopes. Uh, and it was, just, it was considered just a very simple entity. And uh, now we know that these, the cellular, at the cellular level, is extremely complex. Uh, even, even simple cellular organisms have all kinds of things going on in their little biological factories. And these biological factories are, are replicated exponentially in our, in, in, in our, in our bodies, um, mm -hmm. given our size. Very diverse, yet still completing a whole. And our bodies are, you know, are, so we've got this idea now that we look at the side and you go, holy cow, look what's going on here. We got energy, we got energy mechanisms, energy transfer mechanisms, copying strategies, uh, <laughs> all kinds of things going on inside the cell that was unknown um, mm -hmm. during Darwin's day. And in the 50s and 60s, in the origin of life researchers, which I think is really the crux of the question today. Uh, to explain these, how did this stuff come into existence? Mm -hmm. uh, origin of life researchers have recognized this complex nature and of unicellular life and biomacromolecules. And further, they've, they have characterized this complexity and specificity in informational terms. Now, that's them doing this. Molecular biologists routinely referring to DNA, RNA, and proteins as repositories of information. I know there's another question we'll deal with a little more specifically, but this idea of information in biology, biochemistry. Uh, and this is, this is the chief argument that Stephen Meyer has, has elucidated um, in his work. And they come, and these researchers, molecular, bi molecular biologists researchers, original life researchers, regard the origin of the information in these back as a central question facing their research. Uh, one, one origin of life researcher put it this way, the problem of the origin of life is clearly basically equivalent to the problem of the origin of biological information, okay? All living cells have this information. Viruses have this information. Um, COVID has information to make other COVID. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, to make other COVID particles. So it's all the way down to the most basic elements of, as you can call a virus, life. That's always, that's, a, that's debatable too, or are they just more molecular machines? But they have information. And the problem of the origin of life there is clearly this, this concept of biological information. Why is it there? Where did it come from? How do you get information out of brute matter? Huh. And so Darwin didn't know much about the inner, he didn't nothing about DNA. He didn't know about the inner structure or crucial role information plays. And so the more we learn about them, the more outdated this guy is no longer necessary hypothesis seems to be, which mm -hmm. is, again, Stephen Meyer's hypothesis. 
bringing back the God hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And molecular biologists have used the term information consistently to refer to, and I want to stress this, to refer to the joint properties of complexity and functional specificity or specification. And that's very similar to what the ID guys are saying. Complexity and specificity. Mm-hmm. And argue against attempts <laughs> yeah. and to argue against attempts of as just metaphor, lacking any empirical content, which you'll see in the literature, you know, you know, this information thing, it's just metaphor. It's just describing things, but it's not really, you know, it's just how we talk about it. Um, it will show that the term biological information refers to real features of living sex systems. They're complex and they're specified. Features that jointly do require seems to require an explanation. Hmm. Yeah, so Jerry, I, 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 I know this question might, it fits in with, and I've been kind of thinking how I wanted to write this out while you were talking, but historically, biology and science in general actually was investigated or try, the discoveries in science were made by God-fearing believers, maybe not necessarily Christians, but, uh, you know, you you had the Jewish, you had the uh, Islamic, and you had, you know, Christians that were actually developing science um, uh, methods and theories. At what point, at what point did did we just, um, I don't want to say say it wrongly, but kind of almost in in the idea that we just kind of, gave that territory over to non-believers why okay. when did that happen good question uh, the history of science this is fascinating from the standpoint of the scientific revolution which was a western you know a western european um was born out of or in the christian worldview that's not debatable. Yes, the Babylonians did things called, you know, did, did things, did measurements. Yes, trying, but strictly in terms of methodology, scientific revolution of the 16th century um, into the Enlightenment period was born out of a Christian worldview. And Interesting. Um, why? Well, because they, what was it Kepler famously said? Kepler, the famous astronomer, I'm thinking God's thoughts after. Mm. They had a sense of the stability. Yeah. They had a sense of, uh, of, you know, of that there was something, there, there's something behind this. Yeah. Uh, and that the Christian worldview offered the resources uh, for them to go ahead and do their science. Very good. Uh, and, Probably the most important or uh, greatest, greatest um, um, greatest scientist of all time is considered Newton. Uh, it's somewhat debatable whether Newton was a full-fledged Christian. Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, deism was enraged back then. Oh, uh, is, the it, is it believed that he was a deist? Pardon me. Is it believed that he was a deist? It's hard to say in his writing. You know what's fascinating about these guys, particularly a guy like Newton, <laughs> know more about theology than he did about science. Um, there's some doubt whether he really accepted 
Christ. Um, I didn't know that. Deity. Um, so I just throw it out there. Some people question it. it it's, it's hard to say, but there's no question he was a full-fledged theist, and his theistic worldview was imported into his science. You know, it was important to how he thought about things. Um, there's constant quotes of him looking at psalmets. You know, some of the, some of the psalms are about the uh, the beauty, the majesty of the uh, of the universe that he was helping characterize. Um, so Kepler was one, Newton, Faraday, going into the 19th century. Even I, even Einstein as a Jew had some had some understanding that something's going. You know, and then there was the evidence that said, you know, there is something going on here that's beyond. You know that. It's, it's just, there's some transcendency going on here. So it was born in the Christian worldview. That's just the way it was. It could have been born somewhere else. The science was, that is its history. And that is, and I do think as Darwin, we can, I can't overemphasize the Darwinian paradigm has um, taken over um, and naturalism as the predominant worldview, where where science is primarily done within a naturalistic paradigm. One one point I'd I'd like to make right quick before... Yeah, go ahead. But one point I'd like to make real quickly, and and I guess we need to move on to the next question. Um, All three of us are are, uh, avowed creationists. And so, so I'm arguing this for, as a creationist. But it seems to me, I mean, I don't understand how people could even take evolution to dismiss God completely because even if evolution were to be true, it's still a process, a procedure that, would, that couldn't just necessarily come about on its own accord. It seems to me that it would be necessary that someone would design a process you know it just seems that way to me and I, i'm not a scientist but it, it just seems to me that it, something would have to be i mean it's just not going to pop into existence this process so it's like a conveyor belt uh, in a factory it's not going to just assemble itself and then then say well here we're going to send this automation to make the uh, car part you know by itself it, it has to be designed by someone so right that gets Two, two, two points on two issues I kind of trust there. First, the issue of life from non-life, yeah. abiogenesis, and uh, origins, which I talked about earlier, or, um, origins research. The question is, where did this stuff come from? Okay, <laughs> if evolution with its natural is, is, is driven by mutation through the process and then selective through the process of uh, random selection. That's fine. Okay. Where did this stuff come from for exactly. the mutations and the natural selection to do its thing? And, and how did the whole process of mutation come about that would lead to... And some would even argue that, that if, it, if it leads to higher... Um, even more uh, fully developed individuals. I mean, because we are f- more fully developed than, say, uh, 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 some type of bacteria or something of that sort. So it's, it's strange the teleological emphasis, impact that that something like that would lead to more complex creatures. Uh, it just it just seems odd to me that someone would even take, even if they were an evolutionist, that would they would just simply say, well, there's no need for God. It just seems odd to me. 
Yeah, and uh, atheists and atheistic scientists don't like to be confronted with abiogenesis. They just don't. They go, that's <laughs> beside the point. Um, and uh, other, you know, there's theistic evolutionists. Uh, the BioLogos group are primarily promoting a theistic evolutionary point of view. They fully accept the evolutionary story, and they're wedding their theology, um, attempting to wed their theology to that, uh, to the science, to that particular, to the evolutionary development point of view. Um, others don't do that, uh, and so they were saying, "Well, yeah, you know, God." God did something. He used the process of evolution, and that was his create. That was that was the, just how he created, or how he continued to create, which goes into the whole question of then humanity, where and that whole thing, which we'll talk about in the next segment. Um, the image of God. Where does that come from? Mm. So, the abiogenesis question is a big one, and this is one where. Again, going back to Stephen Meyer, he, he he hits on quite quite a lot. And frankly, although I haven't kept up with a lot of this literature in recent years, as far as I know, they 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 come up empty. There are no real viable theories for life from non-life. And you have the DNA and you know you have the DNA RNA protein conundrum. Um, you need proteins. To deal with DNA and RNA, but you need the DNA and RNA <laughs> to make proteins. <laughs> wow! Can't have it. <laughs> the question is: there's kind of a chicken and egg argument here. Yeah. Um, how did you get one without the other? And how did the one then deal with you know how did the if you had proteins first? Well, how did the DNA and RNA come along? I mean, these are these are questions that. There isn't there isn't an easy answer to. So you need the enzymes, you need the proteases um, to work with DNA, to copy DNA, to translate, transcribe DNA to make proteins. Um, so it's kind of difficult to see, you know, where the information. It would seem to me that the information contained in the DNA and the RNA would take priority to construct those proteins. Okay, then that asks other questions, you know, well, how did that, how did that, how did that all come about? Right. RNA is notoriously unstable. DNA is more stable. It's a double helix. RNA is, is very unstable. So it doesn't just exist out there very long. So there's lots of, lots of interesting questions about that. And, you know, People are working on it. I'm not trying to be pejorative on anybody, um, or you know, uh, get get um, question people's motivations or what they're trying to do scientifically. You know, be, yeah. being spirited about it. These are just the questions that are out there, and um, so far, abiogenesis, origin of life, has come up with a with a with a blank slate. Wow. Let's, let's move to our next question. What are some of the functions of the human body that show evidence of design? I'm going to start with, um, that's a tough question to answer. In, in its, in, 
um, to break to break that down in terms of specifics of the body. I'll say this, um, going back to Darwin. Darwin said, if I can find, let me see if I can find that quote. Um, yeah. He's, Dar Darwin conceded. He said, and this is a famous quote. It's been out there. A lot of people comment on it. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have formed by numerous successive slight modifications. Remember, that's kind of the classical understanding of yeah. mm -hmm. evolutionary thought. My theory would absolutely break down. <laughs> so what's Darwin doing there? Well, he's offering a falsify, he's offering a falsify, a falsibility to his own thesis. And he's being honest, you know, and uh, it's like putting disclaimers in, in papers or under, you know, say when you're publishing data, scientific papers or any, or any type of research, you kind of delimit your own research and say, you know, this is what it can, this is what it can do. This is what I didn't do. You know, you're being honest about mm -hmm. well, how far someone should take your data and your inferences and your conclusions. And Darwin does it right there in his origin of the species book. So, what do we do with that? Well, some people have answered, how about the eye? Pretty complex. Yeah. Um, multiple things going on there. Uh, it, even today, if you, I know an ophthalmologist, and he is strictly a retinologist. He just deals with retina. But go a couple of nanometers to the other side of the eye, and there's a whole other specialist. Wow. <laughs> Oh, you know, that's how specialized medicine is today, you know, and using the eye as an example that it's extremely sophisticated, complex. And how did this particular organ, if you want to call it that, you know, come from a pinpoint or a, or, or a simple lens of some sort to what we see in humans? Um, this is this um, incredible organ that that brings <laughs> brings imagery, brings 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 uh, color and, and light and darkness into our lives. Right. I mean, it's fascinating, and he he offered that type of thing. And so, this comes to the question of what um, people have to, uh, come to talk about is this: these irreducible complex, irreducible decision, yeah. Uh, yeah, irreducible complexity. This has been debated in the literature for 25 years since Behe published his book, Darwin's Black Box. And he continues to fight attempts to refute it and challenge him. He continues to hold to it, refine it about this, this concept of um, irreducible com complexity. And uh, that is um, by slight you try that, that you have this idea that these biological systems and the one that he was working with, his model was the bacterial flagellum. Mm. And he used also a mousetrap as an analogy. You know, you have five parts to the mousetrap. Yeah. And if you take one out, it doesn't That's function right. anymore right. as a mousetrap. Right. That's very simple. Uh, but then he, he taking it to the biological realm. He started playing around. He started thinking about well, how 
you look at the sophistication of a flagellum. It's got rotors. It's got turbines. I mean, this is, I'm describing these things kind of metaphorically from our point of view. Right. But if you look at it under an electron microscope, it, it, it has these things, but they're molecules. They're molecular structures. They look like gears. And then the flagellum has a shaft, a propeller shaft line. And the, the concept is, well, how did that come together? If you take one part out, does it function as a flagellum anymore? So that's that's the model he's been working with. And you can transfer that to other biological models anywhere in the cell. Uh, you know, then let alone that we continue to be these holistic organisms functioning with all, if you want to call them, call them these irreducibly complex systems, right. um, neurologically, biochemically, um, you know, just on and on it goes, physiologically, you know, tremendous complexity of the, of say human life, mammalian life, and as I said, even down to the cellular level. Hey so, Jerry, I, 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 I hate I hate to cut you short because this is such a such a compelling thing you have. Believe it or not, we're almost out of time. Uh, so I want to I want to leave a little bit of time for the last question for closing up this this episode, um, and, and maybe we can come if we have time in our next episode. Come back to anything else you'd like to add uh, on okay. on that point. So. How does, real quickly, how does human DNA show evidence of design, particularly with the information argument? Yeah, the information argument is, is to me, the main, main argument. And we touched on it earlier. Uh, there is the fine-tuning argument, which is also an information argument, that the fine-tuning of the universe, it is so finely tuned with the major, with the major regularities or laws of physics gravity, weak force, strong force, and electromagnetic force, along with many others. And this is not disputed. The data is not disputed. Um, The interpretation is where the fun happens. And, (laughs) but they seem so finely tuned uh, that move them a little bit here, a little bit there. And I mean, a little, even a little, we're talking exponentially, um, very small, very big numbers. We're not here. Mm-hmm, there is right. no life. Um, so the fine tuner, uh, even even uh, astrophysicist Fred Hoyle said, and he's the one who coined the term the Big Bang. He said a common sense interpretation of the data suggests. This is another famous quote: suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics <laughs> to make life possible. Um, so. The fine-tuning data is pretty has been well accepted out there, and it, it just gets built built more and more on. The question is, why is it like that? And not to get too far off on this, but the counter to design is the multiverse option. Mm. Well, we just happen to be in the right universe, yeah. uh, and there's all these other universes out there. So it's basically increasing the odds. Yeah, let's postulate a lot of universes. But my point is, and others have pointed this out, that's not science. We don't have any evidence of multiverse. It's a, it, 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 Bill Craig called it a kind of a grandiose, a gratuitous metaphysic. And, and to add, and, and uh, to add to the problem, real, real quickly, don't mean to interrupt you here, Jay. But to add to the problem, even um, uh, 
see, Borg, uh, Vilenkin, Alexander Vilenkin, and uh, the BVG theorem, they've shown this to be the case. But Vilenkin even furthermore state, uh, speaks on this issue that any physical universe that shows forth inflation, any physical universe must have a start point, and that even includes a, a theoretical multiverse. Right. It just pushes the question back, as you're pointing out. Right. Exactly. It doesn't answer the question. It just pushes the question back. Okay, where did all these bubble, <laughs> these bubble universes come from? Yeah. Um, so, right. It doesn't really solve the problem. Mm-hmm. It just increases the probability. Um, uh, and that's, what it's, that's, that's the purpose of it, because there is no real evidence for it. All right, let me talk more about biological and biochemical information. Um, Watson and Crick, as I said, elucidating the DNA molecule in 1953. That set forth the neo-Darwinian synthesis, the birth of molecular biology, and uh, huge, huge discovery. And within the next five years, they had elucidated kind of the entire system of DNA, RNA, uh, the transcription, the trans- transcription process, the translation process, the proteins, incredible amount of great research with us was done. So Crick proposed, and this is, this is their terminology, that the chemical constituents in DNA function like letters in a written language or digital symbols in a computer quote. Uh, that's what they made the analogy to. Chemical constituents are like a written language or a digital symbol in a computer code. And so again, the question is, how do you get information in chemical bonds yeah. of AG, of adenosine guanine, thymine, and um, adenosine? Yeah, they're just chemicals, raw chemical, you know, raw raw ingredients. And how does that? How do you get language? Or digital that to be a repository to use an earlier term of digital of information, and as Chris stated, you know if you if you want to if you want if you want a software um, want a software you get a computer programmer, um, and so functioning computer computer programs depends on these sequences and binary of zeros and ones, and similarly the DNA molecule's ability to direct the assembly of proteins let alone the assembly of those proteins and the folding of those proteins to fun- and the function they do, it depends on specific arrangements of what I just talked about, these chemical constituents or these bases, the adenosine, the, th- the adenosine, thymine, uh, guanine, and, aden- and um, well, I think I got them all. There's <laughs> <laughs> like four. Four of them, and then RNA has uracil. So along the spine of the double helix structure, and again, molecular biologists are using this term information. They're using it consistently to refer to joint properties of what? I talked about a complexity and specificity. Um, so, again, we're back to this idea. The origin of life issue is basically equivalent to the problem of the origin of biological information. Mm. Even Richard Dawkins, the great, the, the polemicist, the evolutionary um, evangelist, I call him, and the polemicist against anything with religion or, or ID, he sees the machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. Right. And Bill Gates will say the same thing. You know, Bill Gates, Microsoft, the, uh, the whole, you know, the, 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 the man who put computers and cell phones 
started us on the trajectory of computers and cell phones in everybody's life. The DNA is like a computer program, he says, but far, far more advanced than any software we could create. <laughs> so we're back to this beginning again of where did this information come to? How does it get encoded into biomolecules? And not only that, um, there's information being exchanged, not in just DNA and RNA, but throughout the entire cellular system, the entire workings right. of the cell. That's right. Uh, so there's a lot, a lot of going on in terms of the cellular communication process to get the things done that they're, still I use the word, designed to do. <laughs> now, they'll use the, they, the, the people who reject this will say, they'll use the word design, mm -hmm. but then it's metaphor, okay? It's the appearance of design. Um, it's not really design. It's the appearance of design. And, uh, but but didn't so, even the Richard Dawkins in the movie Expelled with Ben Stein, uh, have you seen that movie, the documentary? He even says something to the level that he does believe that the universe was designed, but he believes in the theory of panspermia, that some highly evolved alien race came and planted and seeded uh, life on Earth <laughs> to make it. <laughs> oh, oh, I don't know if that was Richard Dawkins. That, my yeah. understanding is that, that's... that's, that's uh, Francis Crick. Well, actually, I think it was Richard Dawkins because uh, he, he was uh, being interviewed he, he by Ben Stein. Way, but I think Francis Crick, Francis Crick uh, elucidated something similar. He, he, he may uh, have. He may have been the first. And my response to that is you have Chemically to induced. such a grandiose, speculative origins type of s solution to get away from theism or to get away <laughs> from design. Then the question you ask yourself, well, where do those aliens come from? I mean, you know, <laughs> you, it, you, you come down to, <laughs> you, you, you come like to, I said, the music, our, 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 our intelligent design is not just something, like the SETI program, search yeah. for extraterrestrial intelligence. What are we trying to do? Exactly. We're trying to look for intelligent life and we're, and we're, how are we trying to do it? Based on patterns that we think they'll recognize. Um, so, J Jerry, this, this is so good. But we we have actually come down to, uh, to believe it or not uh, to the end of the podcast. We've run out of time here, and uh, just want to say one quick thing to that. You know, I think this shows the importance of uh, of a necessary being, and I think it leads to that because, like you said, you know, alien life. Um, that they they had there has to be an explanation for that. So you come down to an eternal being of some sort, and uh, going back to the Richard Swinburne uh, book, he says just um, it's just uh, comes down to the fact that you need an immaterial, omnipotent, omniscient being, and that just so happens to match the uh, the uh, qualification uh, classification we see of God in Scripture. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank uh, Jerry Bogatz for being with us on this episode. Coming up on the next one. Uh, we're going to cover some deep stuff. Uh, Jerry's going to talk about the image of God in humanity. Uh, we're going to talk about the, 
what is the image of God, the Imagio Dei. We're going to talk a little bit about substance dualism, uh, the soul and the body. Uh, how do they interact? Uh, what are the distinctions between the two? Uh, we'll talk about if we have evidence for for a conscious soul, and then um, other areas of research that may be important for someone who may be a biologist and wants to study in the areas of creationism. So that's coming up next week. Be sure to catch uh, the podcast right here on bellatorchristie.com and anywhere where podcasts are found. And you can also, I want to let you know, you can catch the writings of Jerry Bogatz as he is a contributor for us at bellatorchristie.com. So we're going to flip it over to Curtis as we land this plane. All right, well, we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and has become a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and become a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie podcast, and until next time, Brian and I say, So your own, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. This podcast is an exclusive production of Bellator Christie Ministries and is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect the opinions of Bellator Christie Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. To see more from Bellator Christie Ministries, go to bellatorchristi.com. Bellator Christie Podcast is coming soon. The sixth season of the Bellator Christie Podcast begins Thursday, September 22nd. This season will feature three theology series. The first will delve into pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? The second series will be on soteriology, looking into the various perspectives on salvation. And this section will handle issues concerning Calvinism, Arminianism, Thomism, and Molinism. The final series will be a second entry into the Theology Proper series as we delve into the knowledge and revelation of God. How do we know that God exists? Has God revealed himself to humanity? If so, in what way? Does God still speak to people? These issues will be covered in a lot more. Additionally, Season 6 marks the first time in podcast history that we will offer a live video interaction with individuals on YouTube and social media. We have a lot of exciting things going on with Season 6. We hope that you'll join us for what should be an amazing ride. Season 6 begins September 22nd at 8 o'clock p.m. And you can find the Bellator Christie Podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and anywhere that podcasts are found. The Bellator Christie Podcast begins September 22nd. We hope to see you there.